most of this is just like clumsy attempts to do the right thing. And like trying to do the right thing and failing is not tyranny. Welcome, greetings, salutations, and hello. This is The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I am Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. What's going on, Adrian? Well, like ABBA, um, <laughs> we are finally reunited. In so many ways, like ABBA. Like ABBA, we, we have to be edited together because we're not actually in the same place. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we could extend this metaphor in so many ways. But um, yes, totally. We are remote ABBA. That's what we are in this podcast. No, we're, we, we've taken some time. We've done, we've done solo projects on the podcast. Yes. I think I should apologize to all our listeners for like being kind of often on the air, as it were. and um, Your phantasmic presence over the last several months. I know. <laughs> Poor Adrian. But that's over now. I'm... Water under the bridge. I'm back for good. Yes. He's trapped. I've trapped him. So you had this really great conversation in my absence, reciprocating the phantasmic presence. You had this great conversation with, I would call him a friend of the pod, Michael Hobbs. Friend of the pod. Friend of many pods, but also a friend of this pod, yes. A friend of this pod, indeed. So like these two wonderful male feminists, what did you discuss, Adrian? So the conversation came about kind of spur of the moment. Uh, Michael and I had met up in Berlin earlier in the summer. Part of my absence over the last couple of weeks and months has been that I'm finishing this book for a German publisher about like how the idea of cancel culture sort of travels among like right-wingers and freaked out liberals basically because mm -hmm. for listeners from the united states you would be shocked to see what degree of interest interesting european especially french and german but also british newspaper reading audiences take in the shenanigans of woke undergraduates at uh, at the collegiate level oh and you their noble interlocutor there to translate these bewildering american trends what happened was that i kept getting asked like, could you write about like how you're afraid of your students and like how wokeness is out of control i'm like fuck no i'm not writing Are that you afraid of your students i'm not afraid of my students it's like, like <laughs> no my be, students are delightful very, like i mean like they, do they always do things i like no do they do things that i no. find ridiculous sure i'm twice their age like of course i do the same is true of my friends and family exactly, members. Right? i make all of those same statements yes. yeah um and so i eventually got sick of saying no and i said wrote a bunch of articles being like you guys need to shut the hell up about cancel culture it's not a thing and it's not very interesting and it doesn't exist in Europe or whatever like it is like anyway and so then someone was like hey you should make a book out of that and so I did that mm. and then as I'm writing this book mm -hmm. basically I, I met up with Michael Hobbs because he as you know he's like the he's the feminist myth buster he's the myth buster of feminism he's a moral panic buster yeah he gets very interested when people engage in maximalist conclusions from poorly sourced anecdotes like i just am loving this image of like you and michael frolicking in berlin and this very like isherwood date i love this no, we had falafel but you know whatever um it's um great i mean isherwood probably did too probably isherwood strikes me as a, <laughs> as a shawarma man more or less um totally. little donor kebab that uh, that almost feels like a euphemism. what would christopher isherwood eat at the kebab shop. Fine chap, uh, fine chap. Shawarma man, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I want to. I want to play this out to like a whole literary game. You know, like like what would so and so order at the kebab shop? Anyway, go on. You and Michael eating falafel. We sort of started talking about the fact that as I was writing this book, the panic around cancel culture became really, and this happened both in the United States and in Europe at the same time, basically. Mm -hmm. These panics were kind of lagging after one another like for years, and now this is sort of happening in lockstep. They became panics about trans people and I think specifically trans kids. Mm. And I have to say that part of the joy of writing this book, and I have enjoyed writing it, was getting to dunk on people saying dumb <laughs> things. But... That's part of your daily joy. That's just, that's not confined to this book. It's, you know, it's just like, it's fun to snark. But this is really where the fun stops for me, mm. right? I'm like, if a if it's a vulnerable, like, when it gets to the kids, ten year old yeah. or a twelve year old, yeah. like, or, who's already having the roughest go of it, like, totally. Oh, don't don't pile on. Yeah. You're a person with a hundred thousand Twitter followers and a you know weekly column or whatever, right? And so, Michael and I ended up talking about with the cancel culture panic and the trans 
panic sort of have in common? Mm. How, how these things kind of kept getting linked? And of course, as listeners who are immersed in this, especially I'm guessing, you know, listeners who are themselves trans would be quite hyper aware of this. Of course, the cancel culture panic started as a panic about, oh, you're not allowed to say X, Y, and Z anymore, where X, Y, and Z was basically transphobia, right? Mm -hmm. It was it was people like Dave Chappelle. Like, mm -hmm. That was always kind of in there. Dave Chappelle, who's still very much a millionaire and still very much making oh, yeah. appearances. He's, he is all over my Netflix. The ongoing joke about, yeah, the people who are quote-unquote canceled and yet still so employed and visible. Yeah, he's, he's hyper-employed at, at Netflix, it seems. Yeah. Anyway, so it sounded very neutral, right? Oh, there's certain opinions you're not allowed to have. But if you ask what the certain opinions was, more often than not, it was transphobia, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of it's kind of coming full circle. But for a while there, it like the transphobia part of it was, I would say like they sort of yada yada it, and now it's like sort of right back out in force. And so mm -hmm. I wish there was someone who could explain that to me. I was like, wait, there is. And I just had falafel with him. And so I, I texted him. I was like, let's let's do this. Let's talk about... Let's jump on the horn. Let's, let's, let's jump on the horn. Let's, let's jump on the Zoom. As we say in the biz, let's Hindenburg this shit. We do not say that in the biz. Um. <laughs> oh my God. Every time you say something, as we say in the biz, it is sure to be followed by the like most arcane idiom I've ever heard. I love it so, so much. No one, in the, yeah, <laughs> no one has ever said, but, but I'm going to make this happen now. I'm a trend. Well, and let me also add from my female perspective that, that you consulted me and said, you know, like, do you want to be a part of this conversation? It wasn't logistically a good time for me to be part of this conversation. But I also wanted to say on the air that I really approve of two men having this conversation, two cis men having this conversation, and that I want that to be spoken on by men as much as it is by women. So I, I endorse the femalelessness of this conversation is my statement here. Thank you. Thank you for the vote of confidence. I, um, it, it, yes. it, Feminism comes to approve. As you can imagine, we were a little bit leery of that. And I am fairly certain that there is going to be a group of, of self-identified feminists who are going to be less than chill about the fact that there are two sure, sure. Cis gay dudes talking about trans issues there. But is this not the project? I guess to those imagined critics, I would say, is this not the project of feminist progress to make these issues discussable to everyone and to to discern that everyone has a stake in these issues and that these are not solely the provenance of women or of trans people, but that this is everybody's issue. Like that, I think, is an important overarching point. To realize that the projects of trans and gay and female liberation are all inextricably linked, which is perhaps our single biggest theme on this podcast. Indeed. And I should also say that if you're going to tune into the conversation hoping to hear a lot about the trans questions that got us to the conversation... You're going to have to wait a little bit. Like we really, we feel our way towards this. Mm -hmm. Like you're listening to two people talking who've been thinking about nothing but the cancel culture panic for Cancel a long, culture long time. and turfism. Yeah. So we get there at the end, but I think we might want to say that Laura and I got so excited about yes. this idea that we're going to do a series of conversation on this. So this is... Deep nerd cuts. This is the beginning of a whole cycle of episodes that are going to deal with this. Not so much because we have set of questions, but because I at least don't even know really what my questions are. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say that both you and I, in a sort of superstructure way, are trying to work out the intersections between cancel culture, trans-exclusive radical feminism, which in our contention is not feminism at all, and how those intersect with like the sort of current cultural conversation and how they're informing all of these discussions about who's allowed to say what, basically. Yeah, and, and, the, and the kind of weird bedfellows that you make, right? The fact yes, yes. Not to, you know, invoke the queen of that segment of the population, but, you know, J.K. Rowling keeps being surprised that the people who agree with her on trans people are these Nazis and the people who agree with her on cancer culture is Vladimir Putin. It's like... That's that's a fucking sign, yeah, milady. Like that's a sign, yeah. right? Like if I wake up and tomorrow someone's like, you know, Richard Spencer and Vladimir Putin both liked your tweet, I'm like, I, I have to change my life. Like what 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 just happened here, right? <laughs> so like I would feel the same way if Vladimir Putin liked my tweet. <laughs> what a sentence. And in addition to that, I also want to bring into the conversation just that, like, it seems to me that a fundamental principle of everything we discuss in feminist theory and discourse is the idea that everybody is an expert on their own experience, right? Every individual owns and understands their own experience and has some right to determine what that experience is. 
And what always strikes me about the turfy arguments of it all is this idea that someone else, that J.K. Rowling, knows better than that 10-year-old what is inside that 10-year-old's like mind and spirit and heart. That just seems so absurd to me. You know, so even if we, I guess my point here is, even if we take out the sort of like red team, blue team of it all, of like whether Vladimir Putin liked my tweet... It seems to me a very unobjectionable common agreement that we could agree that everybody is an expert on their own experience. And yet, in this discussion, that somehow gets so embattled. And I think that's part of what interests me about it. I'm glad you say that, because that is a nice preview of something that Michael and I talk about in, the, in this conversation, because that's true for cancel culture discourse as well, right? Sure. The way more right-leaning and usually older voices talk about identity politics, right? It, on the one hand, talks about young people without really talking with them. And mm -hmm. it seems to suggest that it's actually a waste of time to talk to the people themselves, right? Like, yes. one thing yes. That, that always happens when we get when we get one of those cancel culture stories is like, you can tell that the source was largely the person, either the person who claims they were canceled or a person close to them, right? Like a parent yeah, the or sort a, par of shadow boxing. a partner yeah. or whatever, who you rarely ever hear from are the people who did the supposed canceling. People who are like, this is fucked up and you shouldn't say that. Or I don't want you on this email list. Or would you mind terribly using my actual pronouns, right? That person is never asked. And I think there's a kind of pedagogy contained in a lot of these, mm. in a lot of these pieces saying, you know better. And I do think that that's why this becomes on some level, I'm not going to break it down along generational lines, but it does tend to kind of be a good generational thing because it never hurts to tell old people that they understand young people better than they understand themselves, right? Because the <laughs> right. obverse of that proposition, namely that you don't understand the world anymore, is of course like too horrible to contemplate. Offensive and unthinkable. Yeah. Having recently, you know, crossed the 40s threshold myself, I get it. Like, I think it's, yeah. I, I think it's really terrifying to look at a trend and be like, I don't get it. Oh. But everyone else seems to think it's okay. So I guess it's okay. <laughs> it's it's a melancholy thing. And I guess some people, it you sure know, is. It's, it's, it can be hard to deal with. I get it. Oh, one's own encroaching obsolescence is terrifying. I mean, to, who who better to understand that than writers in the academy, for fuck's sake, you know? <laughs> well, well, see, that's the thing. Like, I think I, we're, I'm, we're well prepared because we were obsolescent 24-year-olds. I know. I've never been unobsolescent. It's true. You know... <sighs> This is another sort of complex thought that I'm trying to string together, but I'm thinking about this sort of core conservative argument of like, well, you just can't say anything anymore. It seems to be so often the refrain to what's perceived as the cancel culture. And like, I approach that wall from many different avenues, but one of the avenues through which I always approach that wall is as a survivor of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And that's always a lens that I'm bringing to the classroom too, where I assume that some fraction of my students have also been survivors of sexual assault, just going by data and statistics. And it always seems so absurd to me that people are so set on preserving a language that is harmful to people who have already been harmed. You know, the same argument is true as approaches like trans language and politics, like that you could make exactly the same argument. I'm just describing how I tend to approach it. And it just it just continues to seem so absurd to me that we can't make any concessions for the comfort of people who have already been harmed. <laughs> like, it just continues to be so absurd. No, exactly. I mean, I'm guessing that someone who does want to defend the use of the word cancel culture would say something like, well, but you shouldn't jump down someone's throat if they make a mistake. And, you know, we can say like, yeah, that's... Which I agree with. Yeah, politeness yeah. requires that someone messes up. You can point it out to them, but like you shouldn't be, shouldn't be a jerk about it. Okay, but that's really not what we're talking about here, right? I mean, like no. one of the first sort of starting guns for this new panic about what's sayable was another trans issue, namely the Jordan Peterson diatribe about political correctness that sort of launched his mm -hmm. career. And mm -hmm. if you remember, he was pissed that he had to use pronouns. And it's like, yeah, look, my dude, like... No one's putting you in jail. No one's yelling at you. Mm -mm. I mean, eventually they yelled at him, but like not for using the incorrect pronouns. And if they did yell at you for using the incorrect pronouns, like, yeah, maybe that's not the polite thing to do. But you know what's also not the polite thing to do? Using the incorrect pronouns for someone. Like, well, the, yes. you're being asked to accede to basic standards of politeness here, and you act like it's fucking 1984. The book, the year. No, no, I understand. Right? Like, it's it's absolutely... Uh, staggering to me, I think I would be sad if a student 
didn't feel okay seeking me out if I had said something that to them invalidated their experience of sexual assault. On the other hand, I will feel much worse understanding that I harmed a student in that way without meaning to, mm -hmm. and they never said anything, right? So like, it's it's just, you know, totally. in, in some way, you're being asked for some basic empathy there. That's the thing with empathy. Sometimes you go right, sometimes you go wrong. Sometimes you don't do enough, sometimes you overdo it, right? You're like, oh, you know, what should I call this person? Like, call me whatever, like, it doesn't matter, right? Like, but in some way, that's that's what being around people who are different from us which all of us are, right, right. is about that, like, right. we try to tease out what are the things that this person, what are the legitimate claims this person has on my treatment of them? And then do I want to accede to that or not? Or do I have a reason for right. not doing that, right? To me, it's, it's always so striking that, like, those very basic standards of decency are being experienced as... As oppressive. Massive censorship by people who otherwise cannot otherwise shut the fuck up about yeah. decency right like you can't say fuck but like they will defend to their to their death the ability to say the n-word right it's like <laughs> okay right uh you know just so yeah. we have that on record yeah like we don't want we don't want that filth but like a word that will literally make right. people like clench like, sure, like that's something that you should just throw around the break room, you know? What continues to strike me is that the insistence that harmful language is not harmful seems to rest upon the premise that the previous harm, you know, the people who have already been harmed that I mentioned before, seems to rest upon the premise that that previous harm never occurred. You know, that trans people are exaggerating, that rape survivors made it up, that women are just bitching, that, that like, Black people should be grateful for what they have. You know, like, it's all resting on this denial of a previous harm that is ahistorical and offensive and it, that's just what always jumps out to me about it yeah i mean it's 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 also not an accident that this is all happening right after me too and concurrent with black lives Matter, of course right? not like this is it's, the backlash it's this, this is yeah this is this is basically me too for cis white dudes yeah um yeah yeah right down totally. right down to right like Michael and I talk about that a little bit too in the conversation that right down to the fact that a lot of these cancel culture texts work around anecdotes. And mm -hmm. you and I would look at that and be like, look, I don't understand how this is not just a, an isolated incident, right? Can you really extrapolate from a speech by Miley Yiannopoulos getting canceled that like there is a new climate of repression on U.S. campuses, you and I would probably say, we don't think so, right? You know, facts, not an evidence, as, as a lawyer would say. At the same time, of course, it's noticeable that this is proffered at exactly the moment where Me Too and Black Lives Matter precisely make that claim and say, mm -hmm. Eric Garner is not an isolated incident, right? Mm -hmm. Harvey Weinstein is not an isolated incident. And where those movements have become entrenched into the mainstream, you know, where you, where those movements have grown. Right. And so basically their way of saying, well, if you can have anecdotes, we can have anecdotes, right? But the part of it that they don't reflect on, I think, is basically that feminism and critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, have spent 40 years, 60 years, in some cases 200 years, trying to explain why these things are mm -hmm. not isolated incidents. Providing a body of evidence, yes. This is how you get from that to the structure. Right. Yeah. Evidence. History. Theories. Data. We had to change our vocabulary. We had to just even change the way we just the way we look at things, the mm -hmm. concepts we use to talk about certain things, right? Microaggressions is a way to say like, mm -hmm. yeah, like, is this a big deal? No. Mm -hmm. Does it have systemic value? Yeah, actually it does, right? Like you can agree with that or not, but like that's a sustained effort to do that i do think that like the cancel culture and before that the pc panic which is kind of the same thing in green basically just kind of yada yada is all that away it's like this has happened right, to this right. one guy and then this right. other thing happened to and this guy there's the conspiracy Zealand. and yeah. here's a case from france yeah i was like well, well it's not even the conspiracy it's like it's like a climate there's mm -hmm. like the climate change mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. like and it's like, well, no, you don't get to have it that easy because, like, you have to give us a, like, what's your theory of the case? Mm. How, how does this happen? Um, instead, we get this kind of warmed over anti-communism, this warmed over sort of... Oh, it's totally Red Scare panic. Christian yeah. victimology, et cetera, et cetera. Can I take it to the bridge with a very, like, grassroots level experience of gender? 
<laughs> that is very related to this. Please. So my kids are, my assigned male at birth kids are four and eight and have both had quite a bit of interaction with like trans and non-binary people growing up in San Francisco and recently had a non-binary babysitter that occasioned the discussion of what is non-binary and what does that mean? And so like I explained this in kid-sized terms, you know, some people are boys, some people are girls, some people are both or neither. Some people don't identify with being either boys or girls. And my kids kind of took this in and like were totally unperturbed by this. We're like, cool, that and the sky is blue and, you know, let's put on Bill Withers on the radio. Like it was totally normal. So I don't really know if they've retained any of this the way that you don't with kids until a couple minutes. No, it was a couple hours later. I think the discussion one was on the way to school and discussion two was on the way home from school. My older one turns to me and he's like, mama, what was that word that means not a boy or a girl again? And I was like, yeah, non-binary. And he's like, yeah, yeah, non-binary. And he was like, I had a question. I was like, great, love questions. He goes, where do they go to the bathroom? And I was like, from the mouths of babes. <laughs> like, wow, yep. honey, that's actually yep. a surprisingly complicated question. And now we have a lot more gender neutral bathrooms, but like... I felt such feminist angst in not having yeah. a better answer for him and watching his confusion at this like core issue. Anyway, from the mouths of babes. Well, we have digressed richly and productively. A little bit, just, just a tiny bit. No, I would love to continue talking about the construction of gender for children, and I hope we do. But for now, I just am really excited to hear your discussion with Michael, friend of the pod, Michael Hobbs, who you probably know from You're Wrong About, among other exciting projects. This current uh, podcast is Maintenance Phase with Aubrey Gordon. So good. It's also terrific. I know I've made this joke about Michael before, but like, if you subscribe to this podcast and you don't subscribe to maintenance phase fix your life yeah like you're you're the you're the one person <laughs> fix your life if you are that person uh please please do there are such great rebels from diet culture i should also note that michael and i nerded out about moral panics to such an extent that the conversation ran crazy long and so what you're getting today is actually the first half of our conversation. The second half will be following in our next episode, which should release next week. So stay tuned for that. We will see you on these airwaves soon. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. I might start with, with a tweet of yours that I'm only half recalling from a few weeks ago. You said something like, it seems like we're just doing all of the moral panics now. Do you remember this? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what that was about? And like, what can you describe for, for a potential listener? Like, oh, it was, um, it was the marijuana thing. There was a, there was a, some story in the Telegraph or somewhere in the UK that was like, people having like weed madness or something and scrometing. It was part of the whole scrometing oh, thing. Scrometing. I love scrometing. And I was like, oh, we're just going to do all of them at once. We're doing critical race theory and trans people and like just throw some reefer madness in there basically. Yeah, yeah. Go dig deep, dig deep. Yeah. I mean, and I think for, for me, it like, as you can tell, it, it resonated both. I thought it, the scrummeting panic was particularly funny. I mean, I think not since Jerkham have we gotten one that was like yeah, yeah, yeah. quite so chef's kiss. <laughs> I love the tweet, not just because I love myself like a truly ridiculous moral panic, but it really seemed to get at something that I was observing, which is that, is it just me or are these things coming really fast and furious right now? Do they kind of piggyback on each other? you know, in a way that maybe they didn't five or 10 years ago. It's weird. One of the reasons I wanted to do this with you is that I feel like you are as concerned about this as I am. And it feels, it feels like we're in the middle of some sort of mass psychosis. I keep thinking about how after the Black Plague, there were some of the worst pogroms in European history. Oh. Just massive, massive deaths of like thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews. And part of it is like there's some sort of like madness overtook people, even though this was years later. It's like we have to explain this somehow and we have to blame somebody. And just like society had this sort of rift in it. And obviously that's much more severe than what we're going through right now. But I do think that there's these forces converging 
where we've just come through two years of a pandemic where everybody spent way too much time online. We're all stressed. A lot of people lost loved ones. A lot of people fell prey to these like weird conspiracy anti-vax theories. And then you've also got the sort of the rise of Trump in 2016. You've got four years of the Trump presidency, and now you've got the Trump coalition in opposition, right? So all of the sort of anger and resentment that Fox News has been ginning up for years, it now actually has a reason to exist, right? Because they're not mm -hmm. in power anymore. They don't have to come up with these weird QAnon theories for like why Trump is really competent actually right. anymore. It's like now they have this guy Biden who's in office and whatever. They, they, they're in opposition. They're in actual formal opposition to something. And then you have all of the sort of the wins that they've gotten. I think that there's also something about people predicted that, you know, maybe if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, then it'll kind of take the temperature down a right. little bit and we can we can kind of restart this conversation from scratch or something. But what's happened over the last year or so is that people on the right have gotten emboldened. And I think right. these, you know, the disruptions at school boards have helped, all the organization around COVID, all the stuff around CRT and getting books pulled out of schools. And now Roe v. Wade, you've just got this this rolling snowball that feels like it's kind of it's kind of coming toward us in all of these different ways. I'm destroying my metaphor now. <laughs> but it's like there's all these little tentacles of this reaction that are playing out and it's playing out in different ways and it looks different and it's different groups, but they all kind of have the same theme. It's just this like rising tide of reactionary organizing. Yeah. I think you've described what I perceive to be the U.S. situation extremely astutely. But the funny thing is, of course, that these things, and this is the thing that, that I sort of study right now, these things are traveling so well, right? So I think the scrummeting yeah. thing was in England, right? Like <laughs> the, the trans panic is now coming to Germany. The CRT panic and wokeism was like huge in France. Mm. Like, I mean, they had COVID, right? Right. But, you know, Trump for them was like more like an external thing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's oddly adaptable for something that I agree with you. Yeah. And it gets to people shouting at a school board. Like it feels like a kind of uniquely American development. And yet what we're finding is that this shit is weirdly versatile. Right. And I think probably the internationalization of media has some effect on that, right? Like when this was happening in the satanic panic, people in France couldn't read an American newspaper, right? And these right. these dumb stories of like Oberlin sophomores kind of couldn't show up in a German newspaper, just like logistically, they had no way of finding out about this stuff. Oh, in fact, they did, but very rarely. Okay. It's mostly through Dinesh D'Souza, I'm finding. Oh, um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So they had to read a book. They had to pick up a book yeah, to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. You're, absolutely, you're absolutely right that like, you know, they couldn't just like be like, go on a weird database and be like, oh, that's a good anecdote to start my article with. Right. What, research more, why would I? <laughs> right, exactly. I think, I mean, I think one of the underestimated trends of the last 20 years is like the nationalization of media. That it used to be that you were getting your news from like the Seattle Times or the Kansas City Star or wherever. And you'd have some national stuff thrown in. You know, there's the AP wire. You'd have some international stories. But things are kind of grounded in the community where you live. Right. And now most people are reading, they're reading Fox News or CNN or the Times or the Post. Most people have kind of shifted upward to this national media. And what that does is it kind of, it expands the scope of the imagined community that you live in. So now people in Kansas City are getting really mad about some college protest in Portland. Right. Something that, you know, 20 years ago, maybe they would have heard about, but not in this kind of every single day drip, drip, drip way that they're getting it. And that also goes up to the international level, right? That, of course, because everything's instantaneous, it's also easy for people in the German media to be like, oh, well, you know, I wonder if this wokeism stuff is happening here too. And of course, if you go looking for anecdotes in a country of 80 million people, you're going to find them. Right. So all it takes really is like this magnifying glass to kind of deliver this daily dose of outrage, which is the function that these stories serve. And I think there's I think people internationally are realizing that there's a market for it. Yeah. Although I don't know that's that's a very good explanation for the international angle. I honestly find it totally baffling. I mean, I think that that's definitely part of it. We might say for listeners who aren't that familiar with the term moral panic that that's one of the main things it denotes, right? This sense of you must care about this thing. This weird thing happened half a world away and you must care about it because, right? right? Do you think that, that that's a pretty good description of it, right? The way Cohen, Stanley Cohen first introduced it, right? Yeah. A bunch of kids beat each other up on a beach 
Beach and Brighton. And then the Daily Telegraph is like, here is why it matters for your weekend, right? Like Totally, yeah. yeah it's yeah. like these things happen, right? The reason is why do you care? Right. And moral panics usually set in, right? Like a kid goes missing at a Midwestern college and he was playing Dungeons and Dragons. And basically the moral panic sets in is like, Here's why you should yell about it at a school board meeting, right? And sure, I think you're, yeah. you're absolutely right that like the, the kind of internationalization that we've seen with social media, of course, plays to, to that, can generate or can teach people this matters to you and you, you should be worried about it when every common sense test tells you like this is pretty far away and not really part of my life world and right. I don't really know that much about it and I don't know the context maybe I shouldn't get upset about it and there are things right. that to get upset about closer to home um, right. but that's exactly what I would, I would think is what a moral panic disables and so it makes sense to me the way you're putting it that like our feeling of proximity and maybe given also on the heels of three years of COVID where our experiences really did start looking kind of like each other, right? Oh, what's new in yeah. Berlin? Well, we're we're sitting at home watching Netflix. Oh, same in San Francisco. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. We were living the same lives. And of course, that can lead to even further context collapse that we just kind of, we're more ready to think like, and now it's coming to Paderborn or now it's coming right. to Lille or now, you know, um, or now it's coming to, to North Yorkshire or whatever, right? Like it's, it right. makes a lot more sense now than it would have, yeah, in 1980. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think of the Kitty Genovese murder as one of the canonical examples of a moral panic, this fake story of a woman being right. murdered in front of her neighbors. Which, of course, wasn't true, but it's it's this perfect thing that, you know, of course, there's murders in New York City every day. There's murders in America every day. This murder was cast as a symbol of how we are a fallen society. Nobody right. cares about each other anymore. It became immediately this symbolic kind of representation of all of the ways that society was becoming worse. Yeah. And I think that that's just a tempting thing to believe, I think, especially as people get older. I think that... There's a kind of kids these days yeah. sort of sentiment behind all of these moral panics and most moral panics through history. It's it's the same narratives over and over again, right? It's outgroups are destroying our society from within. It's crime is out of control. It's I don't understand the, you know, Elvis shaking his hips, right? I don't right. understand the culture and the mores of kids. This This new generation is uniquely spoiled. They're uniquely avaricious. These are messages that have been around since ancient Rome. These are messages that show up in every single country. It's just a very tempting thing to believe as you start getting older. It's just something, you know, I'm 40 now. I look around like I don't recognize any of the pop songs. I don't recognize any of the celebrities. Right. <laughs> like it's a normal thing that happened. I yelled about TikTok the other day and I was like, oh, God, I got to stop. I know there's kids dancing in here. I don't <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. But yeah. it's like this is a normal human thing that happens. But what we have now is we have – a society where the structures of power are all completely controlled by older people. And I, I think it's an underestimated explanation for this sort of thing that like human societies have never been as old as developed countries are now, yeah. right? Germany yeah. is the second oldest country in the world. The median age in America is something like 38. The median lawmaker, I think, is 55. Oh, God. And that's that's actually new. I mean, it's easy to say like, oh, old, old guys in suits have always controlled things, but not like this. Mm, interesting. And there's... Also, the another new thing that doesn't feel new is the fact that younger people are so much more progressive than older people. Mm. And, you know, we have the examples of like the Vietnam anti-war protesters, et cetera. But like that, those people were actually outliers. Right. Like the, the younger people in the 60s were actually fairly conservative and fairly close to their parents' ideologies. Yeah, there's a there's a great book about that in the German context with the other 68, right? Where you th think of the, oh, 68, it's like all like these long-haired oh, yeah. student rebels. Turns out that was, yeah, small minority. There was a, there was a, you know, that generation right. was not far more progressive than previous ones, yeah. But then... I also think at the same time, you've got this generation that is like, yeah, pretty progressive, right? And there's mm -hmm. like a lot of trans people and there's non-binary people and there's kids with dyed red hair and there's people who are advocating for, you know, Bernie and AOC. And I feel like that that sense they, of – They, them pronouns. I know, exactly. <laughs> How dare they? And it's <laughs> – I, I do think that like the sense of alienation among the old is probably even more pronounced now, first of all, simply because younger people are more progressive and also because of social media, mm -hmm. that I think the fact that you're seeing this stuff and there's a steady stream of like, you'll never believe what the leftist 20-year-olds on Twitter said today, right? Like this, the, the fact that these two generations are in the same social space and interacting with each other directly right. 
I think is, you know, there was, there was this tweet last weekend of somebody who was like basically trying to cancel Frida Kahlo and saying that she had like appropriated indigenous cultures. And it was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw and it that. was like a lot, you know, it was, it was obviously somebody who like, doesn't know that much about Frida Kahlo or Mexico and people like very quickly were sort of trying to correct her. And it became, you know, there were a bunch of people tweeting and then it was like a, a, a kind of a meta discourse of like leftists are trying to cancel Frida Kahlo these days. Right. And this was not somebody with any, this was not a, a pundit in a national newspaper. This was not somebody with any prominence that, you know, this person was, was rebuked very quickly and very loudly by other people on the left. But it's like, okay, a random 19-year-old, she looked like a college student, right. can say something kind of dumb, and then a columnist for the New York Times can see it and can then write about it two days right. later, right? And then it can become a national yeah. story, as it did in the right-wing media, of like, you'll never guess what the leftists said. Right. And that kind of, I think that like drip, drip of anecdotes that all tell these same symbolic stories of like the kids these days are foreign agents. They are completely different than you. They are making society worse. You'll never believe what they did now. Just people being exposed to that, I think, just has this like weird kind of pickling effect on people's brains. And they start to think that it's representative. They don't people don't understand that they live in an imagined community. People don't understand that their experience right. of reality is mediated through what they are seeing on social media, what they are seeing in the news media. They don't understand that like right. that's not reality. When you Look at the front page of a newspaper. That isn't what's happening in the world. That's what somebody else has decided to show you. And I think that artificiality seems to get lost on people, or at least it it appears to, because <laughs> whenever you say this, people get really mad about it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's noticeable, right, that like on the one hand, especially with the cancel culture panic, I think social media is so important to it, right? Yeah. Like, as you say, like, where, where else would you have found out about the random 19-year-old who's mad at Frida Kahlo if she hadn't written a tweet, right? And I know that in German newspapers, you know, the, the woke Twitter mob is, like, yeah. always sort of the bad guy in these cancel stories. What people don't realize, of course, is that, or or fail to, to sort of appreciate, is, of course, that that story is also for older people, is made for older people who are also very online, yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah. uh, like it's not, these articles aren't written to kind of hold up well, right? Yeah. They're flashes in the pan themselves, right? These, these like, oh, cancel culture is out of control, right? Like, there's a reason they do them every week. It's because, like, it's easy to do. They're cynical grabs for attention in exactly the same way that a Frida Kahlo appropriated you know, uh, indigenous identities or something like that tweet is, right? I mean, like, that person was probably trying to grow their followers. And then in the end, a newspaper will do the exact same thing with that anecdote. I think one of the interesting things is that that the, the audience, the implicit audience for these articles is sensitized to one fact and not to the other, right? They think that what they're getting from their newspaper is a objective re representation of reality and don't understand that it only works on them because they themselves are also very online and maybe yeah. spend too much time on Facebook rather than Twitter or something right. like that. I also think, I mean... I think there's also something to the fact that this is being driven by national pundits who are themselves public mm -hmm. figures, right? right? So there was this infamous opinion article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that was like, you can't even say woman anymore, yep. right? And it was like, it was this whole thing of like, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, they overturned Roe v. Wade. Anyway, <laughs> the real crisis in America is you yeah. can't even say woman anymore. And of course, the entire premise of the article was garbage. And it, it was based on like a yeah. fucking ACLU tweet that was misread. And they said that like Planned Parenthood doesn't even have the word woman on its homepage anymore. But then you go to the Planned Parent homepage and there's this effectively nothing on it because it's like a hub page. It's like find a provider near you, donate or like get involved. It, there, there's like eight words on the entire homepage. So like, yeah, the, right. the word man is not right. on there either. Like there's there's almost no words on the Like the yeah. whole thing, the premise of the entire thing was yeah. bunk. Powered by WordPress yeah. is the main, is exactly. the main words. <laughs> but it's like this is written by, of course, a national pundit, somebody with a, a huge platform who probably gets a lot of feedback and who, you know, if, if you're a columnist for the New York Times, I cannot imagine what your inbox is like. But you, if you right. say pregnant women – on a podcast or in your column and you're a New York Times columnist, yeah, you're probably going to get some emails from people asking you to use more inclusive language, right? right? You're going to get those. But most people <laughs> are not like extremely high level pundits and don't get that kind of feedback. Like it's, it's applying this experience that is very unique to like maybe 200 people in the entire country are at a level of prominence 
where they will start to get emails about their word right. choice. It's then applying that to like, nobody can say woman anymore. And it's like, no, if, if you're a waitress and you're talking to your friend and you say, yeah, this is going to harm pregnant women, no one's going to email you because no, you're, you don't have a column in the newspaper. So this is not like, this is not a threat to normal people, but I think there's this way that people have this, this very odd myopia where they think that whatever happens to them is happening to everybody else. And it's like, no, people, people who, whose job is to write political opinions sometimes do get canceled for their political opinions because that's their job. Like if you are a waitress, right. you don't get canceled for your political opinions because doing that is, is not something that you typically do at work. So it's just these are two completely separate categories, but it's like I, I, I marvel at how much weird slippery slope stuff you get from like magazine writers and stuff, people with like hundreds of thousands to millions of followers on social media. Right. It's like you can't even say this anymore. It's like you can't say this anymore. You will get emails if you say pregnant women. You will not go to jail. You will not suffer any actual consequences. You will get two or three probably pretty polite emails if you say pregnant women on a podcast. Yeah. Welcome to yeah. your job. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, well, what it does is it's, it creates these structures of sensitization, right? It, it's, it teaches a particular kind of reader. If you feel at all weird about saying this or if you worry about this at all in personal interactions, it's a political issue, right? Yeah, there's, yeah, that, yeah. there's that famous New York Times op-ed that essentially makes that leap, right? It describes like, here are things that for the New York Times have become, you know, part of our job, like thinking about how this is going to be read. And it means that Americans no longer yeah, 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 uh, no yeah. longer dare speak their mind. It's like, well, no. I mean, like that's a very you're describing two very different things here. But like, I'll give you an example. I was I, for the book. I interviewed a bunch of people about what they perceive as cancel culture. And one former writer for a newspaper said, well, you know, but I do have to say, I, I agree with you that it's overblown, but there is something about this cancel culture thing. Like, you know, you know, they like these, this was in, in German. So he said, you know, these, these speech rules, right? And I was like, oh, which speech rules do you mean? He's like, well, I was, at a, I was on a call uh, with students from a Swiss university and they all had pronouns on their, on their Zoom uh, tiles. <gasps> and I was like, well, okay, um, Weren't we talking about prohibitions on speech? It's like, yeah. Right. Like, well, they just said what their pronouns are. They also told you what their yeah. names are. But it's the, it creates this kind of like the sensitization that says like, oh, informing me of this thing, right? Same way that you say I'm Mike, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, you are not letting me call you Jeff, you know? Um, like it's yeah. like it's somehow like re, 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 uh, rethinking, like re, recasting kind of everyday interactions as like, you know, as, as censorship essentially. And this to me is the big sort of participatory magic of this particular crop of moral panics that you're sort of allowed to and, and encouraged to apply it to your own life and to sort of say like, yes, right. I, I met a person with they, them pronouns at the Kroger's, you know? And it, right, yeah, it's, right. it's the same way that like, you know, people seem to find, not to open another can of worms, but like, you know, traffickers at like the weirdest places, right? Like it's, there's a joy to, yeah. maybe for these people to apply these, these kind of lessons they've learned from big national pundits to their everyday life and to find it in their life world. I mean, there's, I think there's something to that too, in that, in that infamous New York Times piece, the only examples cited of this kind of tyranny, you can't say woman anymore, were of other people saying pregnant people, right? It wasn't even right. that like that she had received emails scolding her. To the to the best of our knowledge, she hasn't. Right. It's really that she went on social media <laughs> and she saw a tweet by an organization that she is not in any way affiliated with right. saying pregnant people. That was it. She had to see it, right? And so I think there's there's also this kind of this moral panic reactionary leap there where you're basically you're perceiving the existence of another group or acknowledgement of another group as tyranny. You're experiencing it as oppression of yourself when in most cases you don't have to do any of these things. Like we're still in this kind of transitional period where like some people are saying pregnant women and some people are saying pregnant people. And like I listened to a million podcasts the week after the Roe v. Wade decision was was overturned. Out of 10, probably three of them said pregnant people and the other ones, these are like left-leaning podcasts. The rest of them said pregnant women. And like maybe those people got emails. I don't know what the behind-the-scenes situation was, but like right. that is still vocabulary that is in use, right? And if you don't want to say Latinx, you don't have to say Latinx. Like these really aren't things that are being forced on people. It's literally just like some people are saying it and it bugs me. <laughs> 
Like that's the actual instinct we're talking about. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, in, yeah, in, in in German, you you will have encountered this. It's the there's this debate around gendering. Oh, the right? in where in they, thing where people sort of yeah yeah. yeah yeah where people put like a little asterisk or a, or a, or a, um, a colon in the middle of a word yeah. to indicate that they're meaning um, that they're being gender neutral. And there's all this panic about like, oh, we forced to do this. And really, the effect is the opposite. My publisher has has received a lot of emails and letters over the years about my last book because it did have this kind of stylistic quirk to it. So they get emails about that. Oh, yeah. Right? They get emails saying, like, why are you forcing this on me? They don't get, like, why didn't you yeah. do it here? So they say, you know, if, if you do it, you will you will hear from people. So the in some way, the opposite is the case. I mean, I don't care. They don't care. They're like, whatever, we'll just hit delete. It's the cost of doing business. But in fact, the sensitization runs exactly, tends to run the opposite way. It seems. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And also the the number of people invested in enforcing the status quo is always far larger than the number of right. people invested in changing right. it, right? So last summer, HuffPost, in their style guide, changed from not capitalizing black to capitalizing it. So all of a sudden, we all capitalize black in our stories. The number of emails I got about that, it was – I mean, like, it was shocking. There were, like, two weeks where I got probably 50 emails from oh people my God. in stories that were, like, not even about right. – they weren't even, like, particularly, like, social justice stories. It was like, I wrote about COVID and it was like COVID death rates, white people, black people. And then I get this deluge of emails of like, you've capitalized black. I see the way you are. It was like really hateful and like, like nothing I've gotten from people asking me to be like more inclusive with my language. It was like, you should be less inclusive. <laughs> it was like so ugly and weird. Yeah. But that's another thing that was like, there's always con considering these moral panics, especially the cancel culture moral panic, but the trans panic, all the other moral panics that we're in the middle of, they run on anecdotes, right? right? They're, they're, there's no data to support right. these things, right? And it's like they're predicated only on anecdotes, but there's also a lot of selectivity about the anecdotes right. that matter, right? Because all you hear, I was reading a bunch of old uh, trans panic articles, like the early articles in The Guardian, like the first ones that were like, you can't even say da 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 online and trans people will yell at you. So it's like the idea that like trans people online are vicious and will shout at you if you go against the trans orthodoxy. Right. Like there's – I cannot count the number of articles. Like Dave Chappelle made a whole fucking Netflix special with basically just this argument. My God. But it's like the number of quote-unquote gender-critical feminists that like dox and harass trans people online, like that doesn't count. Right. Right? Because it's like, well, trans people are mean online and that means that like trans people shouldn't have rights. But the people crusading against trans rights of whom there are far more – than trans people, right? These people are extremely invested and they have a lot more societal power. Those That doesn't count. Those doxing campaigns, those harassment campaigns, that, that that's just something that happens. But every, every single time, like five trans people are like, you shouldn't say this. It's like a fucking story in the Daily Mail. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really it's really interesting to think about the fact that like, I mean, in, in German, the, the, there's the phrase "the trans lobby," which I'm always like, "Who, who, are, who is, who love are it. these oh people? God, what the hell?" It. Like, famously rich and powerful. Yeah, exactly. Friends. Yeah, and you can tell from all the like elected officials and the prime minister. I know trans. so many. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like who? Like literally, yeah. Who? Um, yeah. But this is also, I mean, this is God. It's like such. A, it's such an incendiary comparison to make. But this is exactly what they said about Jewish people, right? It's like this. It's the society. Right. It's a small outgroup within society right and like they're invisible and they're hiding among us and they're like trying to destroy us from within this is like one of those ancient hatreds that there is in like across societies across history these are the exact same messages right what's amazing to me is like after researching so many moral panics you start to see the exact same patterns show up obviously like this right. is why it's so obvious to me that we're in this like moral panic period because there's like five of them going on right now and it's just amazing to me that people like doing the moral panicking or at least journalists who really should know better can't look at this kind of rhetoric. Right. Like, wait a minute, you're saying that a marginalized population that faces like extremely well-documented abuse and discrimination is actually destroying society from within and is like in in control of all these levers of power, <laughs> right? Like just let, explain yeah. it to me like I'm five, right? Like it just doesn't make right. any sense. And it's these extremely familiar patterns in like really harmful movements that like go nowhere good. But it's just weird that it's like, I'm screaming myself hoarse about this stuff, but it's like, do people, do other people not see the, like, the category of information that we're seeing right now? I mean, one thing that that I've wondered about, and, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on this book on, can on the cancel culture panic and trying to understand sort of how it got internationalized. And one of the things is the trans panic and the cancel culture panic sort of coexisted 
like from the very beginning, but it now feels like one is really morphing into the other. So in in the German context of the cancel culture sort of meme came to German media kind of in the summer of 2019. Just for context, I think in the US it sort of came up in, in late spring 2018, so about a year and a half earlier, a year and a couple of months earlier. I feel like in the US it was like about like Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey, yeah, yeah. and I think it was Logan Paul because of that oh, Suicide yeah. Forest thing. And in Germany it was like, largely Dave Chappelle. So it was already like kind of this meta panic. I was like, you can't say mean things about trans people, right? And then of course, JK Rowling and like all this stuff, like the, oh, you can't speak your mind anymore. Sort of had the, in brackets, like about trans people. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, it yeah, yeah. for a while, but now it feels like the brackets are coming yeah. off. And it's just like, the new panic is like, not like I would like to say mean things about trans people, but I allegedly right. can't. But like, here are some mean things I want to say about trans people. Um, are you noticing that too? It, it, you know, or I mean, the other example of this, even though he didn't call it cancel culture at the time, when Jordan Peterson did that big video about like po professor against political yeah, correctness yeah. or whatever, right? Which is ultimately like a cancel culture yeah. Oh, yeah. story of on la lettre. And when then like, you know, liberal magazines tripped all over themselves to be like, Like, why'd you let him finish? It's like, we let him talk for three hours, yeah. dude. Like, we, he got to say his piece, you know? It was also about, right? It was about that Bill C-16, yeah. which was about pronouns, right. Uh, right? So so very, very early on, sort of questions of trans identity and acknowledgement of trans existence sort of were part of this. But I feel like they were sort of always kept at the margin. And now it seems like they're becoming more centralized. And I'm, I'm wondering, are you, are you noticing that too? Or is it just that I... Kind of like in in reading it over, I noticed something that like in the moment, like one could was easy to miss. Well, one, I mean, I think what has happened is it has always been there, but it's it's become more mask off. So you know, I did a couple podcast episodes on Jordan Peterson. And I read a bunch of old articles about him, and yeah, the guy came to prominence lying about a law in Canada that he said would imprison you. If you misgendered right. a trans person, which is total garbage, and numerous right. people pointed this out to him that it was garbage. There were articles in the press saying it was garbage, and he continues to this day to repeat this lie. And then you look at the mainstream coverage of Jordan Peterson because he he really is a product of reactionary centrist media that lifted him up. And you know, there's a yeah. BBC story a couple days after this that's like the 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 professor with controversial views who's like right. a debated person in Canada and it it sort of retreats into this abstraction where it's like well he you know right. he questioned the ideology around gender it's like no i mean he lied in a way that was like very clearly transphobic and trans people obviously like clocked this anyone with a brain clocked that like it was really obvious what was going on right. but you look at all of these there were numerous articles in the atlantic They were like, why do leftists keep smearing Jordan Peterson just for right. asking questions? And again, it doesn't really specify what he's actually saying. Right. And this happened again with the Harper's letter. They write this entire thing of like professors are being fired for talking about research. And these abstract, again, this like retreat to abstraction. And right. obviously that's not what's happening. Like nobody's getting fired for, for publishing articles about like the mating habits of tree frogs, right? These are, right. <laughs> these are very specific questions like about – basically one or two issues that they just keep asking questions about, even though answers are readily available. Right. And so it's like, it's always been there, but it's like due to the way that it was being framed by establishment media, it was like, you seemed like a crazy person. If you were like, Hey, this is transphobic. Like this is a cover for people with transphobic views or who want to platform transphobic views. That's very clear. That's what the agenda is here. But it was like, Oh, How dare you? Like, you're smearing Jordan Peterson and like, oh, well, if you watch his other video, he actually clarifies blah, blah, blah. And now right. he's out in public, like straightforwardly misgendering Elliot Page, right. straightforwardly deadnaming Elliot Page, like the lowest bar, the lowest imaginable bar for just like basic respect for other people. He's he can't even clear. It's like Elliot Page was taken away from us. Yeah, it's like oh my god, like it's it's unbelievable, yeah. right? So it's like okay, mask off, but also this, <laughs> I don't know that there was that much of a mask. It's like the, this was deliberately presented to you as like there's literally an article in the Atlantic called like why is everyone so angry at Jordan Peterson? Right. It's like well maybe because he's very clearly transphobic, right? <laughs> like that's that was always obvious, but it's like this weird. It's like this need to launder people into the best versions of themselves, which I do not understand. Yeah. And at the same time, of course, casting 
the opposition, not not even sort of just negatively, but in these very anonymous terms. Like I had a I, I had a conversation about this issue with another German colleague, and you know, he said, "Well, you have to admit that the way that Kathleen Stock was treated at the University of Sussex is, is very troubling." I said, "Well, you know, honestly, if any if, if students." They're trying to get a professor fired. That's that's always tr- that's, that is troubling. Although I don't know the case that well, and and it sounds to me like you know she she quit in annoyance, which you know uh, it sucks if you feel like you're in that position. But okay, but it's it's not really accurate to say that her viewpoint was suppressed. And I and the very simple the very simple test for this is if you look at how her work has been received in Germany, for instance, her book was reviewed just about everywhere. If you look for the names of her critics on in German media, and I've done this, you will not find a single name, hmm. right? The people who are criticizing her are this nameless quote-unquote mob, and they're just cancelers. And because they're cast as these right. cancelers, you don't have to identify them. You don't have to engage with their arguments. You don't have to, like, get a, you know, counterpoint from them, right? You don't have to reach out to them. Uh, and that's another thing that, that's, some, that's so interesting about these cancel culture articles, that it's so obvious who holds the mic in them, right? right. It's always their solos. It's always the, the person who got canceled allegedly telling their story. And it's very clear that what the article didn't do, which is why they always thrive in opinion pages and in arts pages, is that no one called the university, no one called the critics. Yeah. Like, oh, so what do you mean by that? Uh, can you can you explain a little bit? What's your crit- critique exactly, right? With Kathleen Stock, for instance, it's always like, you know, who online trolls say is transphobic. And it's like, no, there are very good recent critiques of right. her positions and of the law that she was campaigning against. Again, like, like with Peterson, like this is all documented by people who, you know, actually work on the thing that she opines on, right? Like, Kathleen Stock is not an expert for gender. She yeah. is obviously like very interested and has thought about it a lot, but she's a specialist in aesthetics, right? That's her field of expertise. She's an interior decorator, technically. Yeah, well, yeah. I, so I, that yeah. sounds like... No, she, <laughs> Yeah, sorry. No, she. Yeah, no, she. She works on. She works on fictionality. It's it's a, it's okay. a really interesting and it's an important field. But it's not. But you know, there are people who work on gender and who have pushed back on this. And you cannot get the Times to call them, and you cannot get the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung or someone like that to to or Le Monde to call them. Instead, it's like you know, basically they parrot the the line that the allegedly canceled person is providing. Right. To me, the more I read into this the more I think that's really the ultimate kick that readers of these and consumers of these stories get out of them, which is to say, these people don't matter. Right. You don't have to listen to them, right? right. It's, a, it's a permission structure that it's not even, I don't think it's even particularly hateful. It's just saying things that exhaust you must not, you mu- you don't have to let them reach your consciousness, right. Right. right? Like, just make the white noise. Don't don't care. About, you don't have to care about like if your if your grandchild says they have they them pronoun now, just tune them yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that's that's I think the powerful feeling that these articles sell you right down to the you know sort of the famous you know political correctness anecdotes yeah. of the nine of the eighties and nineties, right? Where like we also never really hear from the people who actually made the complaint, right? right? Uh, or the famous Title IX stories where like very rarely do you sit down with, right? Like unless it's Chanel Miller, you don't sit down with the accuser and like, okay, so explain exactly what was in the what was in the complaint that didn't make it into the media, right. that kind of thing. Instead, they sit down with like, you know, the wife of the canceled professor at a dinner party and are like, right, and she's right. like, yeah, Thank I God. used to be a student. And like, yeah, this looks, this looks great for everyone concerned. I'm glad <laughs> we did this. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, there's also the the dangerousness of this at this particular moment is that th- this is also how a lot of people have been introduced to particular social issues, right? That right. if you don't know a trans person and you don't know very much about trans rights and the first story you read about it is like there's these trans people and then somebody asks them like pretty reasonable questions and then everyone yelled at her. You're going to be like, well, oh, these these people don't seem very reasonable, right? If, if that's if that's the information right. that you're given about this issue, right, and especially the repetition, right? The old the old saw in journalism is that the media doesn't tell you what to think, but it does tell you what to think about. And so right. if you've got this story of like, there's this comedian who's being yelled at by trans people, and there's this academic being yelled at by trans people, and it's not really clear about what their views are, right? It's just sort of like, oh, you know, maybe they said some things, but like, oh, these people are really overreacting. After a couple of those stories, it, it, it implants in your brain 
that it's just like, yeah, these trans people just don't seem very reasonable. And they're like always yelling at somebody and like, this guy's just making jokes, right? It, it seems like there's just this group of people that like, like you said, you just don't really have to listen to, right? And nobody right. presents it, like your, your introduction to the issue of trans rights isn't just like extremely basic stuff about like how difficult it is to find employment, how much violence there is, how, you know, the conditions in prisons, like all these just really basic things about how difficult it is to live as a trans person. You don't get any of that stuff. All you get is that like, oh, I said something about like a sports thing or like something that just really in the grand scheme of things is not that big of a deal. But it's like someone made a joke about a trans swimmer and like they got kicked off of Twitter. And you're like, well, you know, that that seems bad. So it's like the number of, I mean, there's a huge amount of bad faith people on this, but there there are like good faith people who just have not been informed on this right. issue, which drives me nuts that like, I, I feel like in these conversations, especially with like my parents, friends, and with older people, I just have to like really go back to square one and just be like trans people have always existed. This is a group that the only thing they want is like basic civil rights protections. What they want is very similar to what gay people wanted in the 90s. All the arguments against right. them are the same ones that people used against gay people in the 90s. Like, let's just all take a step back. But people, the way that they're being informed about it is like they're zigzagging from anecdote to anecdote. And the, all of the anecdotes have the same meta story, which is like these unreasonable people are mad at this reasonable person. Right. Like that is what people are being told about this. I, I've become really fascinated with this. Maura Weigel wrote a really interesting review of that book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, right? The Hate and Lukianov, right? Yeah, gee. And she made a really interesting point sort of in passing, which is like the way identity politics always gets used in these stories is to basically say you're being unreasonable. Right. Identity yeah. politics by now in the United States has a, is a 40 year tradition and has like, obviously there are people who practice identity politics in weird and ludicrous ways, like above all on Twitter. Sure. But there yeah. are serious people who've thought and leverage, right? I mean, like the entire Kimberly Crenshaw, like you couldn't do that without like the, the Combehi River collective statement. And, you know, intersectionality like really is a powerful tool of analysis. In these kind of critiques of identity politics, you get exactly zero of that. What you do get is like, People are upset. People are getting hysterical. People are getting overly sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, okay, the overall point of this is to say if someone is doing identity politics, right? And it always means non-white people. It always means non-straight people, right? It, uh, because yeah. white identity politics essentially doesn't appear to them. They don't notice it. Um, right. And the but the overall point is, oh, it's always already unreasonable it's always already excessive yeah right and in some way and we are the reasonable ones right sure we may be the ones freaking out about a child half a world away changing their pronouns and growing out their hair but we're the reasonable ones right like sure i'm the one firing off tweets about swimmers when i have not been a pool in 10 years but I'm yeah. the reasonable one. Like, why, why are you all getting so hysterical, right? That kind of positionality, like, that's, I can yeah. see why that's in a world in which, because of social media, we can feel more destabilized, right? That's a powerful fiction to sell people. You're the reasonable ones. Don't worry. You're the good guys here. You're the, you're the heirs of the Enlightenment. The others are destroying the Enlightenment with their wokeness, right? Like, as I do not, right. you don't have to worry about it. If you briefly had a pang of guilt right. because you did something racist, don't worry about it. That's totally normal. What's not normal is that the person called you out on it, right? You know, or that one time you felt bad. Uh, you shouldn't have felt bad. And you shouldn't have been made to feel bad, right? Like, there's something incredibly reassuring about that. And I think that's the siren song of these stories and of these panics. And I wonder if that's why they're no longer going away. Right. Like Stanley Cohen, when he first introduced the, the term moral panic to talk about the mods and the rockers in the in the in the 60s, he was extremely explicit. He says these things are super short lived. Right. You can't keep that level of like emotional pitch going for too long. Now, granted, he was British uh, and granted uh, he didn't know Twitter, <laughs> but he's, he's pretty explicit about this. And that's the thing that with our sort yeah. of forever panic is like really remarkable to me. Like that's the one part like that. If you read that book, um, Folk Devils and Moral Panics Today, I, I feel like I underline every other word. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Except for that part. That part, I'm like, 
Oh God! Yeah. Like, why did he think yeah, it was short lived? Yeah. Like, we we could do this. We we have discovered tantric sex, but for moral panic. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and like and I wonder why that is, and I, I do wonder if it's something to do with like it's actually fun, right? It, for certain people, it's actually in, like it's in, more enjoyable yeah. than than the alternative, which would be to actually have to sit down and listen to your grandkids for a sec. Right. Well, I, the, you should never start a sentence this way, but there was a very good tweet from somebody the other day who was saying that like, you know, when you're on like a moderated forum or something, something like Metafilter, sometimes you'll make a post and then one of the mods will be like, hey, look, we already covered this. Right. We already, we had this conversation. We're just not going to return to it. Like our community has kind of come to a consensus on this. Right. But like, that's something that can't really happen on social media. You can't really do that on Facebook or Twitter. You can just start the, like, let's cancel Frida Kahlo discourse. Like, even on that weekend, there were a lot of jokes about, like, okay, every six months, somebody comes right. out with a tweet about, like, canceling Frida Kahlo, right? And then we all have exactly the same argument and it goes back around. And there is something about the sort of unmediated space of social media and also the just rank cynicism of especially right-wing media – that they, they, there's a real machine right. now to amplify these anecdotes, to find them. You know, there's there's entire websites that are dedicated right. to like what liberals on campus did, right? And there's, of course, an endless stream of these stories because we live in a big country, and also people are willing to lie about these anecdotes, right? So you're you're never going to have an end to like the dumb thing that some activist said at a rally ever, right? So you have an endless supply of these things, and I feel like what Cohen is talking about also is is partly the role of media as gatekeeper, yeah. right? which of course comes with its own problems. But I do think that there was, I'm totally speculating on this, but I do think that there was a sense of like, okay, we've published two stories about razor blades and apples this month. We don't need another one, right? Like it's, it's getting boring now. Like right. you're a columnist, like let's move on to something else. You know, I'm bored of reading the stories, you're bored of writing them. And there was, there was a sort of an institutional ability to move on. Whereas now like that, that ability doesn't really exist. And then we also, of course, have platforms like Substack where, you know, we've seen numerous like national level pundits essentially just become these like subreddits of just like, here's here's the anecdotes this week. Like here's here's this week in leftists. Which were sent to them. Oh, yeah. Uh, which were sent to them by other people. I mean, like, yeah, Barry Weiss, you know, I, I think I think Yasha Munk does kind of do a little bit of vetting. But like Barry Weiss, I think, doesn't. It's just like, here's a thing that someone sent me. Yeah, it's wild. And it then becomes, of course, this self-reinforcing cycle where then you start getting these letters from like, I'm a concerned parent in whatever private elementary school and like my daughter's being indoctrinated with gender ideology and then you know then you just have like a, an endless number of stories the feminist present is co-hosted by adrian dobb and laura good it's produced by laura good and edited by megan kalfas all of our original music is by julie herndon we are eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman the michelle r clayman institute for gender research at stanford university where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues cynthia newberry allison doll crossley natalie p mason jennifer portillo wendy skidmore shivani meta carolyn asante darty and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.